0: What's up, everyone? This week on the podcast, I have Mike Hartsfield of Outspoken and New Age Records. Please uh, support the podcast by subscribing to it wherever you listen to it. Also, if you can take the time to leave a quick review, that would be awesome. Also, tell all your family and friends that there's a podcast called 185 Miles South, and it covers hardcore, and it's fucking sick. Also, if you want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south and become a monthly Patreon. uh the patrons i'm trying my best to do a bonus podcast for basically every long form interview so uh yeah for like this mike hartsfield interview uh we got together there's a few of us and we talk about the podcast and then also we go through uh like a playlist that i build out based on the interview so uh check that out super cool one dollar gets you behind the paywall if you can do more do more if not no big deal man appreciate it like all the support and anyway let's get on with the pod
1: 185 miles south a hardcore punk rock podcast.
0: What's up everyone? This week on the pod, we have Mike Hartsfield of Outspoken and New Age Records. What's up, buddy?
1: How's it going, dude?
0: I'm doing good. It's uh I'm glad to get you on. You're one of the first guys I want and uh, or I wanted. And it was hard to find the time to do it in person. But now, COVID, we just got to do it on the phone.
1: <laughs> We're trapped. We must do it now.
0: <laughs> I know. I know. Um, yeah, and so for everyone, Mike's uh, discography is like the hardest pot I've ever had to do because he's been in a million bands, including like, oh, let me decide. I'll just play bass in this band for three months, you know? <laughs> and And then obviously, New Age Records is completely iconic. And uh, you're still putting out records to this day. So there's a bunch of shit that's going to get skipped. And uh, everyone just email me. If there's stuff we don't hit, we can always do a part two. We can do a follow-up, whatever. For sure. Yeah, this for sure. is a, Yeah, but this is the best I can do for the first run. So uh, <laughs> <coughs> let's get started. But so, Mike, sure. Mike the, to hit you with a question off the bat. Um, yeah. Okay. If you had to fight... A prime Dick Murdoch in a Texas death row match or never listen to Minor Threat again. What are you choosing?
1: Uh, I, um, see, yeah, we should have prepped for this. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna say I would take on Dick Murdoch. Hell
0: yeah.
1: I, I would just, I would, I would just have to do it to take a beating and just live with it. Yeah.
0: There's only one answer. There's only one answer. <laughs> but yeah. So, uh, the label, and well, I, f- I should first ask, how did you get into punk and hardcore?
1: Uh, I got into punk and hardcore uh, when I was in high school. Uh, friends of mine uh, that I met just through kind of being involved in music, and a lot of the guys involved in, in better music were kind of outcasts, like the punk guys, the metal guys. Like Everyone was kind of on their own, yet banded together in a weird way. Um, so Uh, I came from the metal scene, Um, so probably the first year or two of high school, I was, you know, going to concerts and stuff. And then uh, in, like, probably late 85, um, I was introduced to my friend Paul, uh, who ended up being in Free Will, who really taught me how to play guitar slash bass how to formulate songs, how to kind of, like, because really I bought guitars and basses all my life. And like, oh, I want to get this guitar and I'd buy a guitar. And I didn't know how to make a bar chord. I didn't know how to make any sort of sensible sounds. Uh, so like halfway through high school, he was in a band, he was doing bands, he was constantly playing and like would have practice tapes of him playing guitar and i was like oh okay and he'd be like hey we're gonna jam we're gonna do whatever so uh i started jamming with him and figured out like oh this part goes four times this part goes four times great you've got a song for the most part um so in high school i went from being a metal kid pretty much into going to a lot of the crossover shows that were like you know uh Nasty and nuclear assault offenders or, or like those weird kind of bills where when the scene uh, was blended a lot more there would be those mixed kind of bills so it was easy for me to transition from being a metal guy into hardcore and punk because you would see those those bills without even trying um, but then paul with Paul I started going to shows in oxnard and learning about like oh this is Orange County and Fountain Valley and Wishing Well, oh that's Oxnard, Mystic, you know, and, and venues up there and stuff. So that's really where I kinda got into hardcore and Punk was like halfway through high school and due to having good slash uh awesome friends.
0: Yeah, do you do you have any like early standout shows that you remember?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um shows at the Olympic Auditorium were just insane. Like, you know, uh, I remember going to see Anthrax there and, uh, like, I went, one of the earliest shows, I want to say, or not earliest shows, I guess most memorable would probably be, I think it was 86 or maybe maybe 87 at the Skate Palace in Oxnard, when Uniform Choice and Dag Nasty played. Um, what else? Fenders, everything at Fenders was
0: was crazy. What do you, um, what do you remember about that UC show, Escape House?
1: Uh, I remember being a long-haired kid and noticing like I was always fearful of being, you know, a long-haired dude around punk guys and, you know, being kind of really self-conscious and kind of watching what was going on and and the show was just so amazing and I've met friends at that show that I'm still friends to friends with you know today, and it was just like a really uh, well. And I remember the Butthole Surfers headline. so it was a really it was one of those mixed bag you know mixed bill kind of shows. Um, but it was just great, and I just I just thought of like wow, this place isn't that far from my house. Like Oxnard, I was living up in Santa Clarita at the time. You know, I didn't drive, but luckily I had a couple of friends that did. Um, but I just remember going like like really realizing punk and hardcore there was such a closer connection to the people who supported it you know like I had come from uh, going to arena rock shows you know and and, and going to like the country club and the troubadour and the Roxy and the whiskey and a lot of those places seeing metal bands in like 82, 83, 84 you know like Rat before they had a record and Motley Crue and like a lot of those early bands, but there was always like that rock and roll kind of uh sort of attitude when you would go to hardcore shows and it was like, Oh, that guy just drove his car here and he got out and just walked through the show and then mm-hmm. and that was bands playing and it was just like a more down to earth, more reasonable, more an easier to grasp and understand kind of uh situation.
0: Yeah, and and then you wanna be a part of it. So uh
1: Yeah, yeah, and in really I and coming from being a metal kid growing up going, Wow, I just went and saw the scorpions. I just saw Judas Priest and like you're in nosebleed seats and you're like, there's somebody way down there and like there's no connections. They're playing a solo. I couldn't put, you know, two chords together. And it just was like oh it just didn't last long enough. I guess I guess it lasted as long as it needed to and put me in the right place to go, you know, go to the next
0: Uh, the next step so free will is your first band correct
1: free will was the first band i did that was like oh we have a name we have songs we did a demo but you know everything else prior to that was you know an idea or two guys get together and write something and can't find a drummer you know like free will was the first thing was like oh we have songs and we're gonna put this thing together and 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 try to kind of run with it so do you do a demo before you do the lp yeah, we got together in late eighty seven and I think we recorded the demo in the first couple months of eighty eight.
0: Okay. And then what does this feel like, your first time like being in a room and, and being in a band that's like trying to actually be productive and put out stuff and play shows and so forth?
1: Uh it's it's startling in a way, I like to be in a real recording studio and you're seeing like tape reels move and you're hearing your your sounds played back to you, and I mean, we we were everyone in the band. It was our first studio experience, so like everyone was really all equally excited, equally inexperienced. Uh, so we were just really genuinely, ex- just like uh, out of our minds excited with like like leaving a studio with a tape of your songs was like m- just mind blowing, just totally mind blowing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And now this is how I was talking about your timelines really hard to follow. Um, <laughs> you, you, you decided to do new age before the free will LP because a walk proud sandwich yeah. comes out in 88 before the free will LP. Correct. So why make that jump to doing a label?
1: Um, I, it, it was weird. The, the two weren't really connected at the time. Um, I had started the label um, while, while Free Will was getting shows with bands, and so I started meeting more people. And I met the guys in Watt Proud, and they were like, yeah, we did a demo, we recorded a record, but, you know, nobody's, we don't have anybody to put it out, and I was just like, How, like, you guys are, I was just so amazed. These guys were so good, they were so energetic, they were playing, they were getting on shows, they were doing a lot of stuff, and I was just like, "What is it, what does it take to start a label? You know, and I had just read in a lot of the music magazines around LA, there were deals, you know, ads in magazines where you could look and say, it would say, Oh, get 500 records press, get a thousand LPs press. And I just remember going, well, this is, this ad is to people just picking up the magazine. Like this isn't an industry sort of advertisement. It's just to regular people. And so I just remember calling and Uh, asking a million dumb questions and just figuring out like, well, if this is what it costs, like I'll just work really hard, raise the money and press a record. And that's all it was. I had no initial uh, thoughts of doing a second record or like I hadn't even, God, I don't even really remember thinking that free will should do a record on new age. Um, I, I just don't remember putting that together, but, we got the offer from Wishing Well like mid eighty eight. It was it was really fast. So uh, if that had come in eighty nine or ninety, it, it, I think naturally we could have put out the demo or recorded something new for Free Will to be on New Age. But uh, that Wishing Well deal came and and uh, took us took us to a world we thought was going to be was uh, <laughs> the answer to all our our problems, but it wasn't.
0: Yeah, with doing the walk proud seven inch though, like how did it feel to go through the whole process and, and have like the record in your hand? Uh
1: it was it was a great learning experience. Um because uh for one thing, uh the I got the record and it was a big hole stamped in it instead of a small hole. And I had never even uh I didn't even specify that it needed to be a small hole because most of the records i had were small holes so i'm yeah. like well why even they didn't ask me i didn't tell them so so um when i got the records, uh the center label artwork had been punched through from the big hole so it actually like went into some of the artwork so I, I don't know how nobody saw that while they were pressing it but uh when i got them i was like oh wow like what do i do And uh, I called the pressing plant, and they were kind of bummed. But uh, I guess maybe since they hadn't specified and I hadn't specified, maybe they figured that was their issue. But uh, they ended up redoing them, and I I kept one for the vault. But uh, strangely enough, they went out of business or sold by the time we were ready to do a second pressing. Uh, Maybe it was redoing dumb kids' (laughs) jobs like mine. (laughs) Maybe. they should have just uh, made me eat those records, but um, uh, the um, they just you know offered up. They were a broker anyway. Um, I don't actually know where they pressed the records, uh, but they uh, suggest that I go to uh, another local pressing plant, and I, we just went on from there. So the second pressings and and additional pressings after that happened uh, at a different spot.
0: <laughs> That's pretty rad, though okay so you're doing free will what uh, what do you remember is like the shows of the time like before and then also after the record comes out
1: well uh, so we started playing shows off of a demo and it was luckily at um, an interesting time where if you had a name and could play like you could get shows like shows were super easy um, if you had a demo it was you were that much more important um but there were just huge shows constantly with just you know 7 8 bands and you could always beg to be on first or second or whatever so um we had a lot of luck early on getting shows um when the demo came out it it really kind of launched it from there um the most memorable show we probably played was uh we played Gilman with uh, uniform choice and instead and that was like we were riding high we were pretty (laughs) stoked and then uh we actually headlined a show at the country club which was like a weird booking at the end of the country club lots of promoters were just getting in there and and just trying to do anything to keep shows happening there and then it, it closed shortly after um but those are probably the two biggest shows and then um our record actually, well, long story short, I quit Free Will to join Against the Wall. Or I actually had already started playing with Against the Wall. But uh, with Free Will, we kind of started having some creative differences. And I thought we were kind of becoming a little too melodic. Or not, maybe not too melodic, but maybe just not hardcore enough, which was really stupid for me at that time. I really, I think I should have just, probably thought it out a little better and stuck around. Um, but I really wanted to be in a hardcore, hardcore band. So uh, I made the decisions to make that happen. But I did that before the Free Will record was supposed to come out. Like it was, you know, in, in the process, we've gotten test pressings. And then from what we heard, the two paths involved in Wishing Well got in a fight and dissolved the label. So we were each sitting on one test pressing of the free will record waiting for this thing to come out, and it doesn't come out, and the label folds. Fuck. So that's like halfway into 89, probably, yeah. and it's just, uh, we were so bummed because in high school, we would just, we would go spray painting, you know, escape places we would go to, Fountain Valley, Wishing Well Records, and we just had these these stars in our eyes about, wow, Wishing Well records, use of the Day, and Beautiful Choice, and Blast, and like all these Wishing Well things. And we were just like, oh my God, we were so in awe. And to end up getting on Wishing Well, and then to record the record, and then get the test pressings, and just be like, oh, my gosh, it's really going to happen. And then <laughs> the two guys involved in the label get in a fight, and dissolve the label.
0: You shouldn't have gone so, to so many shows in Oxnard, Mike. I think <laughs> the, the the Nard curse followed you. That's <laughs> fucked.
1: Yeah, and I think that's at the time too, and Bold, I think was supposed to be on Wishing Well. They took their stuff and, and transferred over to Revelation, and I I had blessed the band. I, I just don't think we had the wherewithal to like. Oh, and and in '89. The masters were with Wishing Well, and we didn't. Like, I think one of the pats was in college, and I, I think it kind of just became a mystery to where the reels even were at that point. So we didn't even have a copy to ourselves to do anything with. <laughs> so we were screwed. We were big time screwed.
0: We ended up doing it against the wall and put out one of the great California hardcore 7-inches, which is the Identify Me 7-inch. <laughs> yeah. Came out in 89. Mm-hmm. How does it feel different playing in this band than Free Will?
1: Well, uh anybody who's been in a band that they've started from scratch and then a band that they've joined after there's already chemistry and everything involved knows that uh there's certain advantages and advantages and disadvantages because with Free Will we were just all really so excited, you know, all the same age doing this thing. And we came together, you know, and, and built it to what it was. And when I joined Against the Wall, they had already had a year or two under their belt. Um, they already had most of the material already written. I didn't, I didn't write anything on Identify Me. Um, so I really came in. And that's the first, the first band I had ever played guitar in. So Joe, the guitar player that wrote all that stuff, and taught me how to play guitar was the guy like I was emulating his style and his sort of of flair and technique when I learned how to play those songs and the process of getting into that band when those guys were really excited about music still and friends and really together on a lot of things to where it started fragmenting to where they started being against each other. And... We were going into the recording process and everyone did their part. We recorded, and the bass player quit during recording or right after. And he was replaced. And the powers that be in the band replaced the original bass player's bass tracks with Randy, the new bass player's bass tracks. And so it kind of was like that guy was in the band for a couple of years. Here comes his record, he finally does it. He's had enough of certain personalities in the band, he's out. Well shit, you know, okay, God, it kinda kinda sucks. Like I'm the newest guy in the band besides Randy, who had just joined. And then the guitar player has had enough, Joe. He quits and they just cut his guitar tracks out. So the <laughs> record is is my guitar track and Joe's uh, which was a really dick move. Uh, I, I, I quit the band before the record even came out. And it was just, it wasn't a healthy sort of situation. Um, <laughs> but just like, I get a lot of credit for that record, which A, I didn't write any of the songs. And B, it would have sounded so much better with the guy who wrote those guitar tracks, having his guitar tracks uh, on the record. So it was one of those weird situations when you join a band that's not yours from the ground up. You are at a disadvantage to making decisions and, and you know calling shots or whatever. So uh, I remember when the record, and the record was originally supposed to be on New Age. And we had advertised the record coming out on New Age. And I was, uh, <laughs> the decision was brought to my attention after it was already made. of Oh, hey, we're going to do this on Nemesis. And it's like no, I was like no, we've already advertised. This is this is good to go. We're we're doing this on New age. No, no, we're not going to do it. You know, Frank's going to help us get shows, and that's a better move. And and uh, so we're doing it. And it was like, okay, I'm the guy doing the label, but like you know, we had made a decision to do this. But what was I going to do? You know, not play on the 70s? Like <laughs> I, I had nowhere to really go. Um, And Nemesis ended up getting us one of the greatest shows I've ever played. So uh, it was, I was sour, but um, uh, I got over it. And since the band broke up and everything in the early 90s, I've tried numerous times to put the record out. And it's just, it's great. It's awesome. Sounds good. I start working on stuff. There's arguments. There's just (laughs) weirdness. And last I heard there was supposed to be some discography somewhere, and uh, I didn't really know much about it. And it's been seven or eight years since that was a project. And I, I just figure that stuff just probably on YouTube or, or wherever. But I got a master from the vinyl. I took it in the Paul Miner studio and he, the seven inch and like boosted the levels and cut out all the needle sounds and made it sound really good because there was a time, uh, that was going to, that was going to come out. So, uh, yeah, I think that seven inch is probably just, uh, for the better. It, it, it's rare. And it's if you dig for it, you can find it.
0: <laughs> the most vicious band ever against the wall.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know what? And I listened back to that record and I feel almost like an outsider, like, I can really appreciate it, though I had really, I mean, I played on it, but next to that, I can almost say, yeah, that's a fucking great record
0: without boosting myself up because I had really nothing to do with it. Yeah, what what was the one uh, awesome show you're (laughs) referring to?
1: Oh, uh, we played with Blast at the Country Club and it was my first time playing guitar at a show, so I was really scared shitless um, it was at my favorite venue, the Country Club. Uh, it was with Blast. Uh, they filmed it for a Flipside video that never came out. Um, it was just like when, when those bigger shows were happening at the Country Club, and it was just you know a Golden Voice show, which Frank worked with Golden Voice, so uh, he had gotten us on there. And I've made probably half a dozen attempts to contact Flipside and associates to find out where that video is because i'm like if somebody can get that video and edit it together oh recently played i think too um but if somebody could get that video and edit it together that would just be phenomenal it was a multi-camera flip side video shoot that they did and i had heard i think the word i got back was that flip side had a storage unit that was either burglarized or somebody didn't pay rent on it so I'm sure all the flip side archives were just auctioned off or dragged into a dumpster or something. So uh, I've never seen video of that show, but we find releases of stuff before. So I know it was like a real project that we're working on.
0: That's insane. Well, if if you didn't enjoy your time against the wall though, like at least it, it provided the catalyst for you to move from free will to against the wall and then to do the most important project that you do, which is outspoken. And uh, you do is, you do a demo first, and the demo got re-released as, like, a 7-inch after as well. But uh, so when is the demo? Uh, like, how much earlier than the Survival 7-inch?
1: Uh, the demo was recorded in early 90s. Okay. And the Survival 7-inch, I think, was recorded in late 90s. Okay. Because uh, the studio that we recorded at, we recorded the demo, it was the same studio we recorded the survival seven inch, and when we went in, uh, when Outspoken formed, it was it was kind of a similar thing to Free Will. Like when Free Will formed, it was myself and Paul, the guitar player, and we found the Scott, the singer, and Charlie, the drummer. So like they came as a package, and we came as a package. So uh, when Outspoken formed, I knew John Coyle through shows and things. And he and I started talking about doing something new. And he was like, well, hey, I got this drummer I already started working with. Uh, We've got, like, basically a demo. And I'm like, well, I know this guy named Dan Adair, who's my buddy who plays bass, and he's a great guy. And so it was two and two, and so that we just put out Spoken Together as easy as that. And so when we recorded the demo in early 90s, the original tape we took home from the studio actually has, a version of survival on the end of it, just because it had already been written. And we just went through it in the studio and recorded it live. Just, Oh, let's just, let's just get it down. Just so we have it on this tape, you know, and it's it's recorded in a studio. So there was no additional tracking or anything done. It was just raw sound. So, uh, both were recorded in 1990. So I would say a good couple months between.
0: Okay. And is outspoken playing shows like prior to the demo after the demo?
1: Yeah, we our first show was in February of ninety, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I don't know the actual date of recording, but uh luckily it was it was that early time where you just knew people and shows were easy. And I mean we played garages, we played, you know, small shows, we just did whatever. Um but between doing the not between but shortly after, uh recording the demo playing shows before and after leading up to the Survival 7 is by that winter, we went on tour. <laughs> awesome. So after the 7 came out in 90, uh, we did a trip to Arizona and back. And then we went up to uh, do Seattle and Olympia, if I'm not mistaken, and Portland and Gilman and then came home. How? So, and that was in, that was in a Ford Escort.
0: Awesome. <laughs> so rad. Um, how were you received?
1: Uh, good. Um, I mean, we were incredibly unknown and very straight edge. So we got those kids that came to the show. Um, but of course you're on tour mixed bills or, or even more plentiful. So, we actually played when we played Portland, our show was actually with L7. So, we played to their crowd, which was like, eh, you know, we were thankful for the show and the opportunity, but it wasn't our crowd and there was maybe a handful of hardcore kids. But uh, when we played Olympia, we played a basement for just the local hardcore kids, you know. So, we were getting out there, but the shows weren't tons of exposure. The Phoenix show was bigger, but that was completely insane because uh, we'd gotten the show through Friends in Arizona. Uh, we played with that band Counterpunch that uh, was on the New Age 7-inch comp a long time ago. Uh, they got us the show, so we're like, okay, great. You know, We're playing Phoenix with guys we know, and this will be great. And we got out there, and the entire club was run by Nazis. Fuck. And we, we were just like, wait a minute. It was like, it took, it was like in a movie where you're like, wait, what's going on here? And we're like, she has got a swastika tattoo. Like, what? And like, we were so innocent to the world, I think, at the time. We were just like, wait, the security are all Nazis. Like, what's going on here? And there's hardcore kids and there's metal guys. And we're like, it just was, <laughs> it just didn't add up. And so, uh, as, as Coyle was known to do, which I admire him to till this day for, uh, we played the song Blind Leading the Blind, which is about, which is of course against racism. And he stood on stage and said, the song's called Blind Leading the Blind and it goes out to all you Nazi motherfuckers. <laughs> and, and I don't think we knew or maybe, but, I don't think we really realized that, like, that's the security, that's who's running the club. And before we even struck a nose, there was, like, 14 guys on stage, like, ready to kill us. And it was just, what the fuck's going on? And, and John never backed down in situations like that. It, it was, I just remember him kind of laughing. And the security that were Nazis got between us and the crowd that were Nazis and kept the crowd off of us. And we just could not figure out what was going on. And so we played the song, we finished the set and we were kind of packing up and we started talking to the security and they're like, yeah, we're Nazis, but our job is security and we've got to keep this place secure. So we can't have fights. And it was like, So you kept your Nazi from beating (laughs) up the guys who talked bad about the Nazis because you're security guards and you take pride in your job. And it was the strangest shit. And the security guys actually snuck us out the back door because they heard somebody's got a gun or something. And I just remember just being in shock of like, we, the Nazis saved us from the Nazis who wanted to kill us because we got a song against racism. And John had called the guys motherfuckers. And and we just scooted away in our Ford escort back to Orange County. It, it was just the weirdest thing. And like guys with like SS bolts. And it looked like they did them in a garage somewhere before the show. And just like just the
0: wildest, wildest West sort of uh, situation I've
1: ever been in. Job
0: first, Hitler second. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was the strangest thing. It's like, wait, now the Nazis are going to fight the Nazis? No, the Nazis are between us and the crowd, and they took their job more serious than they took their... <laughs> it's the craziest shit. It was the craziest shit.
0: That's great. So but
1: that's 1990s Phoenix, Arizona.
0: Oh, Jesus. Um, So the survival 7-inch. This is a oh. an amazing 7-inch. Um, are, are you writing this stuff, or who's writing?
1: No, John had written all the entire demo and Survival 7-inch.
0: Okay.
1: And those kind of, so we, when we started, we were playing that mix of, what, five to nine songs, give or take. Uh, the, like, we had most of the material originally, but that was a lot of stuff John and Dennis had written together. Then so when the survival seven inch comes out, we're really firing on all cylinders, and so John and I are collectively writing all the riffs. Um, So we came into a light in the dark with a more combined uh, sort of uh, sort of set list or
0: yeah pack of songs, you know. Do do you start to get some traction after the seven inch comes out? Do you see your popularity go up a bit?
1: Totally, totally, yeah. I mean, it was it was uh, good because we were able to get it out to a lot of stores and, and Dennis and I put it out together. So if I couldn't get to a store for a few weeks, he could go there and get it out. So like we pressed more records, like it was easier to uh, send them out, get reviews. Like it, it was just taken a lot more seriously at the time where like a lot of bands were doing demos. Some were getting seven inches Latin, you know, way fewer were getting LPs out. So Uh, we hit with the demo and the seven inch quickly after. So we really had a full set. We could play later on a bill if we needed to do 25 minutes or or more, you know, not just like a four song opener.
0: Yeah. And then also in in 90, the label really starts to fire because, uh, right. Well, I mean, you put out the turning point LP. How did you, how how did you meet those dudes and how did that go about? Uh,
1: it was a, strange meeting through uh just thinking i mean i had three records at the time maybe just the first two but it was just reaching out to them they were like yeah sure and it it just was effortless kind of like we both just talked about stuff and, and most of my dealings were with skip at the time so skip and i would talk constantly and uh my friend mikey who uh, took a lot of photos for Fast Break Fanzine early on, ended up singing for Drift again. Uh, he and I were really close. He and Skip became really close. So the three of us uh, would talk constantly, and Skip came out here for a visit. I went back there for a visit. Um, so early on, it was, uh, you know, just a lot of that camaraderie and, and, Things were just easy to do. I thought Turning Point was such a great band. I'm like, they're going to let me put out this LP. Okay. You know, like, I'm not going to talk them out of it.
0: Because you know? had heard the 7-inch and liked them, the high impact.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and at the time, I thought I was getting more of that band. Like, oh, this is going to sound like the 7-inch Plus. When between that 7-inch and what they, what they turned in for the LP was just light years, different Slash. You know, more advanced, incredible songwriting, uh, incredible musicianship. Like, they really took a leap between those two releases.
0: Yeah, agreed. Um, The other thing you do in 90, I think this is one of the most underrated 7-inches of all time, is a Powerhouse 7-inch from Florida.
1: Yeah. How did they show up on your
0: radar? You know what?
1: I had gotten their demo, and uh, I heard the demo and I liked it, and there were kind of, there were some rumblings about, you know, Powerhouse, this new band, and I just remember kind of being on the fence about it because, like, all of a sudden I was running a label, and it was kind of like projects were turning into, oh, this is, like, really getting steam, and so, you know, at a time I was just like, well, if I like the band and they're willing to do something, why shouldn't we do something? And I just remember Mike Madrid from against the wall going, dude, you better put that thing out. And I was like, <laughs> huh, okay. And I just remember being like that being the final deciding factor in, oh, okay, I'll put it out. And, uh, <laughs> and the Inch did really good. And I think they had some aspirations for being like, just, they thought like the seven Inch was a launching point and they were going to do, you know, some huge shit. And, I just remember they started having lineup issues and, and they ended up just just kind of sputtering out, but yeah, what a great band to come out of Florida and really like put Florida on the map in a lot of cases.
0: Yeah. Yeah. People got to find that and listen to it. It's so good. It's like the, it's the closest thing to side by side that there is. I think. Yeah. 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 Very true. It's so good. Um, yeah. Okay. So moving on to 91, um, mm-hmm. another band you do that ends up being completely legendary is you do the mouthpiece seven inch.
1: Yes, Yeah. I had traveled across country with my mom in 1990 and, uh, we were going back east to visit family and I knew the upfront guys for the past couple of years before 90, probably 87, 88. And they had come to California in 89 they were going to play in new jersey and they played a show and on that show was lifetime mouthpiece and resurrection and so it was just being at the right place at the right time i guess because all of those bands were doing great on their own uh and full of energy ready to go and it was I think up front may, uh, I think the daybreak seven inch was already out for up front. If not, it was close to it. So that's 90 into 91. And then meeting all those New Jersey guys was like, this is the next couple releases. Um, you know, new age eight, nine, and 10, if I'm not mistaken, are those three bands. So, uh, yeah, it was and Mount ended up being on the seven inch comp, um, up front being age number six. And, uh, so yeah, that was like that pocket of just boom, boom, boom. Those three bands right in a row.
0: Yeah, you do the lifetime as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was such a great seven. It's and such great guys, you know. And and that was just a great time for everyone. Was really excited about hardcore and playing shows and getting out and putting out records and just really like none of us knew anything about anything. <laughs> so
0: it's so prolific for it just being so organic
1: right right and that's i think too a lot there's a lot to be said about just doing shit without well wait what about this what about that like just really grabbing onto something and doing it and like like a lot of like those bands were doing their first studio things also and there's just such a time like that time in the late eighties into the nineties of like the technology of recording was very, oh, I mean, I wouldn't want to say archaic, but it was so simple yet complicated uh, as opposed to what is just so easily turned around today with digital.
0: Um, yeah. So, I
1: mean, it was, a, it was a fantastic time.
0: Yeah. In 91 also you, you uh, play bass and drift again and do uh, yeah. a seven inch the cold season. Um, how was that joining a band and, and were any of the outspoken dudes like bummed that you're doing like a side project or would you even Uh, consider it a side project?
1: Well, no, I mean, it was, it was kind of, uh, it started with Dennis and I from outspoken and our friend, Mikey, who I mentioned earlier, who was a photographer and was just an all around friend of ours. Uh, really wanted to sing for a band and he'd never sung he had no idea if he could and so uh we recorded a demo in riverside in some guy's garage with me playing guitar and bass and dennis playing drums and mikey singing and i i didn't like doing both bands playing on the same bill because it was just kind of distracting in a way i mean i know it happened a few times but uh, i really wanted each to kind of be on their own and and with drift again i mean outspoken was easy like we were just moving forward moving on writing recording doing things and drift again was a demo and then by the time we started writing seven and stuff we kind of changed and uh you know we did this song on the the new age comp that song drag and that was like our first studio experience outside of the garage And we were like, oh, okay, this is kind of a cool style we're kind of going for. And we recorded that 7-inch and the 7-inch probably for all intents and purposes should be on New Age, but uh, I think it was Mikey and maybe a collective idea that, oh, if it's on New Age, it's kind of just going to be taken as a hardcore record and maybe it's going to get lumped in and overlooked. And I was like, well, I don't think so, but you know, whatever. I'm up for I'm up for whatever everyone's up for. And so we had, we started another label, Dennis and I, that was called Network Sound that was like, oh, this is going to be the place for things that aren't just hardcore or aren't straight edge or aren't this or that to where maybe things here will kind of sit on their own, which kind of sucked because nobody knew what the hell a network sound was. And Instead of it getting momentum from new age, it kind of was sidelined in a weird way, like, oh, it's not going through all the same processes. It's, it's suffering. So uh, I don't know. The, the answer to the question of were guys and outspoken, bummed out, uh, I think there was a little bit from certain people, um, but nothing ever spoken and nothing ever got in the way. Um, But Drift Again also didn't have really high hopes, I don't think. I mean, we recorded that seven inch and then we played those songs as much as humanly possible to where, okay, we got to write some new stuff. And it was kind of funny because I remember all of us getting along perfectly, but literally we were writing songs and whoever wrote the song, two people liked that song. And whoever else wrote the other stuff, two people liked that song. And I just remember a practice where we were just, there were two sides to the style we were writing. And one was kind of sticking with where we were. And the other one was kind of like a little more rock at the time, a little more 90s, a little, uh, I don't want to say grunge, but a little more freestyle rock maybe. And it was just kind of a shoulder shrug and it's like a, okay we'll talk to you guys later and and it just it just dissolved at that point there was no we're like we're breaking up there was no fight there was no nothing i don't even know if we played a last show i think we were just kind of done
0: <laughs> and there that goes um <laughs> yeah. on ni- and then let's move on to 92 um yeah yeah so this is again really prolific like almost all this new age stuff is um you do the unbroken seven inch, so you won't be back. Mm-hmm. How how do right. you, how do you meet these guys and what are your initial impression of the band?
1: Well, I have gotten uh, the demo, the two song demo from Eric. And uh, I just remember it just having so many X's on it and just I was living in Big Bear at the time and I just remember getting it and the letter was just so sincere that he'd written with it, and I was like, I'm I, and I listened to it, and I'm like, this is, dude, this is right up our alley. This is what we should be doing. It's super straight edge It's you know, it's it's rough around the edges, but I just fucking love it. And so uh, I just remember writing, going, yeah, let's let's do something. And I think there were phone calls after that, and then before you know it, they were in the studio <laughs> recording the first seven, days. and they had had a different singer before Dave. So, uh, the original shows that I went to, they were playing, they still had their, their singer before Dave. So, um, right, right before the seven inch, I think Dave had come in and, uh, that was the first seven inch. They recorded up in Simi Valley, uh, at the studio we started using, we should have stayed away from, it was fucking terrible. Um, Everyone started going there. It was affordable, and uh, that's kind of all it took at the time.
0: Yeah, did you have any idea that like they would turn into the band that they turned into? Be off like the demo no. of the seven inch.
1: No, no. I mean, just from the seven inch to Life, Love, Regret was. I couldn't have imagined that much of a change. I mean, the oh, and also too, the Ritual twelve inch was just you know. Uh, Basically, cut off the end of the first seven inch, and, and and where the life of regret was coming together. I mean, that was the first LP. Um, so, but yeah, I had no idea, no idea that you know, because really living in the moment of like this is what's happening now. What's the future hold? Like, we had no idea. I had no idea.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because like the the seven inch, and then also Ritual is kind of like kind of shelved for them at this point just because Life Live Regret is so powerful and iconic.
1: Yeah and and one of the things I remember kind of being bummed out about was seeing them after a Ritual had come out and they already had like a bunch of new songs and I just remember going oh, but, the, but Ritual's out and like you should play Ritual songs and they were light, like they were just moving on moving forward writing new stuff breaking boundaries and just like moving moving in a different direction than the guy who put out the record thinks oh you should be playing the record songs like because that's where my head's at and I'm thinking the crowd wants to hear these songs I can only imagine yet they were doing their own thing that was that was going further with people than my thought process was
0: yeah to stick with them just for another minute um what did you think like the first time that you heard the Life Lover Grant LP
1: well, I was really blown away because their, uh, their strong points were being a great live band and writing great songs and also their ability to be simple yet big. And by that, I mean, when you listen to, and I've been there for a lot of the ritual recording process, But they were just focused on. It it was just weird. They didn't overdub guitars and overdub guitars and track this and slice in this. And there was just a a, just a beautiful, natural, creative process when recording. Nothing was overdone. Like they didn't sit and dwell on things. And like everything's very live, very raw, and. Life or Regret is kind of like that embodied altogether. And I remember hearing it for the first time, sitting in my car, and Rob brought me a cassette that I still have. And I just sat going, oh, this is the next thing. Like, you guys were going through these processes with the previous records to get to this point. Like, it's not going to be ritual plus ten, it's ritual times a thousand and wife's ritual off the map. And so I just remember being shocked. And and in addition to that, is the recording budget for Life Love Regret was a thousand dollars. And I remember speaking to Rob saying, Hey, we're gonna need money for recording and I was like, Well how much do you think it's gonna be? And he's like, I think it's we sat with the engineer, we kinda went over time and it looks like it's gonna be about a thousand bucks. So I had sent him a check for $1,000, and when he brought me the cassette, he brought me $150 back. And I was thinking, like, what? why are you giving me 150 bucks? And he was like, oh, the record only cost $850 to record.
0: We finished early. So rad.
1: <laughs> and I just remember going, dude, you're so honest, you didn't bury this in, like, pizzas or, like going out to dinner, doing something like you actually brought me change making life of regret cost $850 to record. And it, it wasn't even, Oh, Hey, we better hurry up. We've only got a thousand dollars. It was like, they knew how they, their process was. Uh, and they sat with the engineer and just figured out the amount of time they thought they needed. And they just happened to finish early.
0: So rad. So rad. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right, back to ninety two. In ninety two, yeah. uh Outspoken does his first LP or its it's one LP, uh a light in the dark. Yeah. What was the process like after doing the seven inch, um, focusing on like writing these songs? And were you looking at like the big picture too, like of how you wanted to craft an LP or are you just writing song, 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 song?
1: Um, well, we had previously done a cassette single I that see. had
0: you're right. Those songs. Sk- One sk- of those songs. I skipped the cassette single. The uh, don't admit defeat the cassette <laughs> single, 1991.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we like my songwriting coming into play. We had started. It, it was we were doubling the amount of songs we were able to write. So we started writing more towards the LP. Decided on the LP, and the studio we had done the cassette single at was a pretty good studio. Uh, chorus had gone there we'd done the drift again single there uh there was a handful of bands going in and out of there um and so when it came to the lp dennis and i were working a lot more together we were doing some we were doing distribution together and and all the outspoken stuff together and we made a fatal mistake with the recording and when we recorded a light in the dark We went to the same place that had uh, we had done the Mean Season 7 inch and the first The the You Won't Be Back Unbroken 7 inch. The first Strife 7 inch on New Age was recorded there. And I don't have a great excuse besides we thought we would be saving money, I guess. But we recorded A Light in the Dark at the studio. And anybody who's heard the first initial mixes will concur that uh, it's less than perfect. Um, so we wrote and recorded the 12-inch. And we were pretty, you know, hearing the rough mixes, we were like, oh, yeah, sounds good. It's going to sound great once it's mixed. And we actually went to a studio out in Camarillo that was owned by the bass player from Rat. <laughs> a guy named Juan Krausier, uh, had a studio in his house. I'm guessing that's probably where they did rat pre-production but or maybe even recorded right record, who knows but uh, we went there he was not there unfortunately um but the guys we had recorded the record with had went to this place to mix and through the big speakers and everything we were like okay oh, hey, God, this sounds great and once it was mixed we got test pressings we were like Everything sounds just fucking terrible. Like it sounds flat. Everything just sounded horrible. And we were bummed. We were just too far along in the process. So the LP came out and recording wise we just had to grin and bear it, you know? Like we just kinda <laughs> like, Oh yeah, the recording, yeah, it's not so good and we were happy to have the songs out because now we can play the songs and people knew it, but it was a running joke for why didn't you guys record where you recorded the cassette single, or why didn't you record at West beach or, you know, the studio that the, that the epitaph guys had. And there were other studios that were doing good work and we just made a horrible move and (laughs) ended up with what we ended up with. And, uh, you know, subsequent mixes afterwards. Or or after uh, mixes that came after the fact uh, definitely shined a little more light on it. Like the discography on Indecision has that better mix. So it was saved, but it it went down in in our personal histories as a big mistake with recording.
0: Plus, on the Indecision mix, you get the bonus come on.
1: exactly and you can't you can't go wrong with a come
0: on (laughs) yeah now that's all that's all like inside baseball though like worrying about the recording and stuff when the lp came out it was generally well received correct
1: yeah and and for having heard rough mixes i mean when we left the studio for the demo or for survival the guitars were raw and the vocal like like even the rough mixes of those sounded great so we should have really fucking got a clue and been like, Hey, the rough mixes on the LP or even un- unmixed. Like there was no bite to it. It had no, it just didn't sound special. We we should have figured that out.
0: How, how does the popularity of the band though, go after the LP?
1: Well, it It went really well. I mean, we were doing, we started doing trips to the East coast where, we would go out there for an extended weekend and come back and we did that through, uh, I think twice in 93, uh, uh, once in 92, twice in 93, if I'm not mistaken. So we were going out there for these weekends that were like just big show Friday, Saturday, Sunday, come home, you know, where we were doing uh, shows in New Jersey shows in New York. And, uh, it was, and New, yeah, New Jersey, New York. Uh, we did Connecticut, I think. Uh, but it, it was really big shows, and like we were playing with Earth Crisis and up front, and like a lot of the New Age bands, Endpoint, um, Four Walls Falling. Like there, there were just really great shows to be a part of, um, which really you know boosted our level out here also because we come home and we play you know with MSTED or whoever. And, and we were really running hard, 92 into 93, uh, playing, you know, constantly.
0: Yeah, would you just fly out and borrow equipment?
1: No, that would have been smart. We it, would rent, we would either borrow a van, uh, we took the rev van one year, Dennis borrowed his mom's van one year, uh, or one time. We would drive out with all of our equipment. We would drive cross-country. Uh, John, who had a full-time job in San Francisco at the time, would fly in Friday morning. We would play a show Friday night. we play a show Saturday. we play a show Sunday. He would fly out Sunday night to be back to work on Monday. And the rest of us would drive home. And we were self-sabotaging in a lot of ways because not only was four guys driving across country. I mean, the first time we tried to do a show cross country and have John fly in early was the last time we did this. We tried to do a show in Louisville and we left and got to Louisville to find out the show had canceled. Back then, 94, there was no way to tell us hey guys, don't drive all the way to Kentucky because the show was canceled. So we got all the way to Louisville to get the, oh, hey, the show canceled yesterday or this morning or whenever, or two days ago. <laughs> uh, but so we just drove all the way there. We took showers, ate dinner, and, and started driving again. Um, so uh, yeah, if we had all flown out, that would have been great. But also at the same time, too, is I was printing all the t-shirts and we were so DIY that we would start printing a day or two before we're supposed to leave and we'd be printing shirts, throwing them in a box with a van idling outside. Like really, hey, we've got three days to get to New Jersey. We've got to leave. And just like throwing stuff, you know, like just seat of our pants kind of operation and just driving straight to the east coast and we would do dumb shit like oh hey we got a swap driver should we pull over no just kind of scooch to the side and i'll scooch in beside you and i'll grab onto the wheel and then we'll save three minutes or so <laughs> we couldn't <laughs> we didn't take the time to pull over we would switch driving while moving which was just stupid but uh, you know, it leads to some of the great stories and, and, you know, getting a flat tire here or there or stopping at, you know, camp or doing whatever we just did. We did crazy stuff and had a blast.
0: Yeah. And we'll just, we'll close out how i spoken. Cause, uh, in 94, you do the current seven inch and this is like even more progressive writing. A lot of people consider yeah, this, a lot of people consider this your best stuff. Um. Yeah, this this was my workload of writing. Like this is
1: where I was, and I mean, I was writing more constantly. Uh, and we were just becoming a lot more advanced as a band. We added Travis on second guitar, who was way better than me on guitar. We had added Jay on bass, who like really took things up a notch. Um, but we recorded that in '90 and it came out in 93 if I'm not with... Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I think we recorded in 93. It came out in 94 because we had it in our hands for the East Coast shows. I don't even think they'd had it before those shows.
0: And then is... like, have you, Is the success plateaued or does it get even bigger after this?
1: Uh, well, Hardcore was only as big as Hardcore was. So we were doing great shows. I mean, we were playing with Farside and and we were playing, you know, with a lot of the bigger bands who would come through town uh constantly with Strife locally. Um and we were doing great. Like I mean we were we were doing what we were doing. But uh I remember we were just at a point where things were were really frustrating, at least for me, because I felt like, okay, we're kind of in the pocket right now. We're we're doing what we need to do. We're writing good stuff. We're still putting out good stuff. We need to tour. We need to be out there. We need to be doing stuff. And at that point, a lot of bands were starting to go to Europe on a more regular basis. Um, and I was just gung-ho. And maybe this is going back to my mistakes with uh, Free Will to Against the Wall, just thinking we need to do more. We need to be doing stuff instead of just really being satisfied with what you have. Um, But my mindset at that point was like, Hey, let's shit or get off the pot. Like John's in San Francisco working full time. It's hard for him to get out of his situation and make himself available for the things the four of us are trying to do. And, uh, you know, Travis was busy with mean season, but still giving us his time. And we were still... We would really write and record practice tapes and send them to John. And he would write the lyrics. And so, like, a lot of times, we would show up in the studio or we'd show up wherever, and we hadn't heard the vocals before. Like, we had even played shows where, like, we know how the song goes. We don't know how these vocals are going to go. And he would just knock out the vocals at a show. Um, So we were... Even kind of ragtag, still able to do stuff we were really excited about. And I just remember 94 being that, hey, let's, let's, let's do something or let's, let's, let's get, let's be over with it. So I think I kind of led the pledge. And also, too, Jay had left in 94 and Jason Hampton had come in on base. And so I think it might have been like a time we were maybe feeling a little desperate, but I think I kind of led the way on. Let's either do something or let's do something else. And so we played our last show, I want to say, August 94. And I immediately joined Strife right after, who had just released One Truth and were ready to go to Europe. (laughs) So it was kind of like, I'm not getting what I've worked for all this time, but I'm kind of getting the same sort of, Reward, I guess. I don't know if, if that's the right word, but uh, it was kind of like a. If we're not going to do it, I'm going to go do it. So, that's ninety
0: four. Yeah, for me. that, I mean that makes sense. And so going back though, you do play on the on the Strife Seven Inch, the My Fire Burns On, the uh, yeah, the New Age one, not the Indecision <laughs> one, correct? Correct. Oh no, no, the Indecision was the demo
1: which I played on.
0: Okay. Which.
1: Uh, yeah that was just the demo we recorded at the time Um, and I just started playing second guitar for Strife in 91 I want to say that lasted 91, 92-ish and uh, I can't remember if there was a reason for my departure or not I'm sure there was
0: you had to be be pretty busy (laughs) let's be real yeah
1: yeah. and I I wanted to be really busy you know because Music was all around us, and so we were. I, I just remember trying to be uh, having fun and, and trying to be involved, as involved as I could. So when ninety four when when Outspoken broke up, I believe that Chad had left Strife to move to Seattle. So the bass position just kind of opened up, and I was like, "Oh, like it was just really perfect timing for that to go." So. We had actually gone on an East Coast tour with Sick of It All, and then right into 95 uh, had done four weeks with Sick of It All in Europe and then a week with Refused.
0: What was that like going to Europe with a band the first time?
1: Insane. Just insane. Uh, So eye-opening on so many levels and just culture shock. Like, just going, like, you know, I had grown up in Southern California. I lived here every day of my life. And like, oh, you land in Germany and you can't read the signs. And like everyone's speaking a different language. And I remember it being so exciting. Like just really everything I wanted in an experience like that. And like to go over with Sick of It All, like we're touring with Sick of It All, who was well-established and some of the most incredible people ever. It was, and with a, big, with a high-end booking company like MAD, it was just really like, wait, we get food every day, and we get to play a show. Like, like, like what more do you need? That's, that's that's the essential for five weeks. Come on.
0: What was the biggest show you remember?
1: God. Uh, they were all. It seemed a thousand to three thousand people. Um, I remember one show in particular that was if I'm not mistaken, former East Germany. And it was just in the middle of nowhere. And it was this big concrete building that had power and lights and a stage in it. And like, literally, I remember driving up going, where are we? Like, this is like, what's going on? And inside was not much to speak of. And people came from every direction to the show and it was just like such a different it's such a different experience too and especially in 94 in southern california people were starting to get a little a little spoiled uh, I, i'm sure everyone including me in particular but i just remember seeing people that just loved music in europe and it wasn't as fragmented as southern california was becoming where like every show was uh, like shows were mostly straight edge bands and those that weren't were half straight edge half just hardcore bands with like maybe you know uh, a far side type of band or somebody but going over there it was like the people were so mixed and it was so it was so enlightening to see like people just love music
0: yeah so rad um yeah 94 you do you play bass in stone telling and do an lp
1: um, no, the I didn't. Well, I think there's leftover bass tracks on the Stone Telling because this is like a the, drift
0: again type project. Is it no, or, no? Not no. Free will. It's, a, it's free will. <laughs> okay, it's a free yeah, will project.
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was basically free will. After I left, and I think they took the record that was done, and maybe they somehow got the reel. But I, but somehow they redid a lot of the guitar tracks. They did redid the vocals, and I think they redid some bass stuff. So, on uh, second thought, maybe they they had some access to the the Free Will reels. But it was basically the Free Will record and songs with an updated twist to it. Okay. So Stone Telling came out. We put it out on that network sound label we were doing. Uh, so then again, it was overlooked and on this. Uh, ambiguous label that nobody really knew anything about that had zero momentum. Um, And I think they played one or two shows and really did not much, not much after.
0: Okay. Um, You, you also joined suppression swing in 95 or do suppression swing. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, The suppression swing came from basically, being on tour with Strife in Europe going, this isn't the band I want to continue in when I get home. And uh, it had become in the time when I was there playing second guitar in ninety one ninety two, um, there were just different, different things going on. And I was just kind of like, I, I was getting that against the wall feeling where I felt like everyone kind of wasn't in the same mind frame. So I thought, well, to save the friendship here, I don't really agree with everybody at this time. And and Todd, the other guitar player at the time, was kind of thinking like, yeah, you know, you want to do something together when we get home. So the surprise and swing was supposed to be Todd from Strife and I doing something new. And it ended up being, I got home. He was like, nah, I'm going to stay with Strife. So I was like, okay. And so uh, I got together with Jason. Uh, who ended up singing, who was the last bass player and Outspoken. Um, and we got uh, some dudes and uh, just started trying to figure out what we were going to do. And I was really motivated because coming home from that Europe Strife tour, I was like, hey, there's some stuff out there. We got to go. We got to travel. We got to do some stuff. We got to write some songs. And so we immediately wrote uh, the Suppression Swing 7-inch which was a combination of of Jason writing some stuff, myself writing some stuff, and Evan uh, Evan Mann, who was the other guitar player, wrote some of that stuff as well. So, um, that kind of just came out of like really being inspired to kind of keep my momentum going and trying to get something else in the works.
0: And you do this band for a while because you play on the LP as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, we did the seven inch. Uh, we got some local shows it was uh things had quite had changed quite a bit in uh 95 96 uh 90, oh yeah yeah that was into 95 so i think by the end of the year we were uh doing some some suppressive swing recording um and then we tried to tour in 96 and we were doing a west coast tour. Our first date was Phoenix and we played Phoenix and the van broke down and it was us and Kel Holiday and Kel Holiday was in a separate van and they, they moved on, uh, their van had not broken down. So they went to the next show and we spent, I want to say three or four days in Phoenix at a Ford dealer at miscellaneous mechanics, trying to figure out, what was wrong with the van and I think they I think Kill Holiday was in Salt Lake City or Idaho or somewhere on a and somewhere on a on a show and we were sitting in Phoenix literally every day thinking, Okay, we've gotta hop once this van once the van place opens, we've got to jump on this thing. We gotta go. We gotta meet up at the next show. We've gotta pick up where we left off. And every day <laughs> It took, as you've been on tour, you know, you've booked your tour in a route. So after two days, you're two days behind. And then at three days, you're like, "Dude, hey, we, we're going to drive straight to Seattle. Or like, "Like, yeah. what are we going to do? And every day the van didn't work. And we just had, and literally top speed was 25 miles an hour with a cloud of black smoke behind it. <laughs> and we spent so much money trying to fix this thing and we like I think Kill Holiday did their last show and I drove or we drove the van home at 25 miles an hour sending up a cloud of black smoke just getting the worst gas mileage you can imagine and just drove it back home (laughs) and I took it to a local mechanic who pulled a a plastic shopping bag out of the air intake. Uh, oh. <laughs> and he goes, dude, nobody thought to do this. And I just remember being so fucking angry. Like, I was paying mechanic <laughs> after mechanic to fix this van to save this tour. And it's a fucking plastic bag in the air intake. Oh and just God. shrugging my shoulders, like, what, we bought new carburetors we, we tried everything And no one Could figure this thing out So that was our 96 tour uh, We came home We wrote more songs And we, we uh, Recorded the LP And We broke up during Mixing And everyone was Just kind of like fuck it And I'm like well we're a couple grand in the recording. I, as a label, should still put put this thing out. I felt obligated. It was my band. I put it out. It did okay. We never played a show supporting it. And uh, it, it, uh, it did what it did.
0: Have you ever had a uh, positive experience in Arizona? Um... Uh, <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> hey, who's who's, Dun- listen, who's listening in Arizona? Let's turn this around. Let's uh, ma- let's let's give them my, let's give Mike Hartsfield an Arizona miracle and, uh, put something together. <laughs>
1: uh, Done dying played in Arizona in maybe 2016, and there was a. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh gosh. Okay, I'm totally corrected we the Dundine played in Arizona twice and they were both very good shows. Uh, one very good to me is everyone has a good time. So one was probably, uh, 200 people and the next one was probably 50 people had fun at both. So, uh, Arizona did redeem it. <laughs> All
0: right. There you go. This is a happy ending. Um, 96 is a sick year for the label though. You put out some of my favorite stuff ever. Um, I absolutely, I love the redemption 87 LP. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the most underrated things ever. Cause you let oh, it, you let it go out of, pl- you let it go out of press though, Mike. So people don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's begging for a repress. Um,
1: okay. I hear you.
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I got one and it'll bring the value down on my record. Uh, <laughs> still, still the people need to know that record is so fucking rad. Um, yeah. How do you meet these guys and how do you feel about this record?
1: Well, uh, it was Eric from Unit Pride, mm-hmm. and that was another example of really good people that just wanted to play punk and hardcore. And I-, I think my best experiences with people have been people with their only agenda is writing, recording, and having fun. And there has been bands that, on the label, I think were aspiring to bigger excuse me, uh, bigger and finger quotes, better things, and had agendas to just, we're aiming really high. And, you know, that's not bad. Uh, And I think things when you work hard and you put your heart into it, chances are you'll feel rewarded even if those rewards aren't, you know, uh, limos and, and big houses and things. Like, it just seems to me like the most genuine effort. Uh, Seem to to have paid off the best in your return with a band and how it's received and a record and how it sounds. I, I could be completely off my rocker, but uh, that's how I feel right at this
0: moment. <laughs> uh, it's all about preaching that positivity. I like it. Um, I gotta I gotta bring up Strain because they got like a diehard fan base still. Um, yeah, you do the Here and Now LP in '96 as well. Uh, same thing. Yeah. What's your experience with them? And how do you feel about this record?
1: Uh, I really like it. And it was something so much bigger than I was expecting. Um, I knew they had a track record with writing and recording and touring and stuff. And I really felt like, oh, we're going to do this record. And that's really going to support them where they want to go tour-wise. Because they had already done Europe, and they were probably one of the earliest bands that had done Europe, besides maybe Mean Season, did Europe in 94-95. Um, and Unbroken had done Europe. So, I really thought that we were going to be a key point with Straight, Like, st- like we were going to come together with Strain at the same time and be this big team. And... They did the LP, which was just, if you listen to it, it just sounds really beefy. And it sounded like it needed the sound to support the sound they were making. You know, like the record, the the sound they created live was supported with a record that did it justice. Um, But they played a handful of shows after. They didn't really do, they did the Europe tour, I believe, They did a little bit of West Coast stuff and they just, they were just kind of done, you know? Um, uh, Yeah, but I mean, the record still stands heavier and and gnarlier than, you know, a lot of stuff going on at that
0: time. Yeah, it's so gnarly for a a pre hate breed world or a pre hate breed LP world,
1: you know? Yeah, and also, too, you know, like a, a, a distorted bass sound. Very driven, you know. uh Yeah, like you said, it's it's overlooked in a lot of in a lot of circles.
0: Yeah, agreed. The other thing I got to mention for '96 is uh I absolutely love the collateral damage seven inch that you put out. The let me be yeah. broken. Um, yeah. Now the best collateral damage song is the indecision comp song. That one's ridiculous. Sure.
1: <laughs>
0: you Many told agree. me to hold. You know, but then this seven yeah. inch is so ill. I love it. And uh how do you feel about the seven inch and, and why do you think this band um never got the traction that like the seven inch deserves?
1: Well, uh I think that timing wise, uh they did really good at home, you know, in Orange County. Uh they were playing with eleven thirty fours and the suppression swings and ignite and, and the local the local guys. Um but oh and actually too, they had gone to the bay area played with redemption 87 i think they played a show or two with afi uh they were getting out there but i think it was at a time where it was really hard to break as a new band you know if you were just really coming out of no x members and no hype and all this stuff you were really having to work hard to get results that you know would be a tour or bigger shows or those kind of things and they were like they're kind of four, not really they're kind of four unassuming guys just like playing hardcore and playing punk and listening to the music and they weren't guys that rubbed elbows with the big guys and you know they didn't really do a lot of schmoozing or uh or anything like that so they were really just a local hardcore band that was good and they were good people so uh i think if you weren't really trying to get up the rungs or trying to network and stuff. You would just write good music and, and play you got. So they could have done a hell of a lot more. And also too, I think some of the guys might've been work constricted or school restricted. So I think that was just uh, what they were doing. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, they did the early seven inch on Indecision. They did the, the calm song, which is iconic and then followed it with that seven inch. And they definitely should have done more. And they all like i hear from them after the new age 30 show which they just destroyed they were so incredibly good at the new age 30 show and it's just like they were their best like they were the best they've ever been in 2018 and they were like oh yeah we're going to we're going to maybe write some new stuff maybe we got a practice place and like they're just probably going to pop out when no one's expecting it and just devastate people with how good they are able to be in 2018.
0: Yeah. It's, it's just a mean modern sounding record, you know, like yeah. it really could just yeah. drop now and, and be fine, you know, where, totally. where a lot of the stuff is dated. Like uh, the, the next band I want to talk about 1134, cause this band was pretty, mm-hmm. hu- they were pretty huge. Um, and, yeah. And the LP, the reality filter is a good LP, but I mean, this, this is just like it's nineties hardcore to the bone. Like it sounds right. like nineties hardcore. Um Yeah. What what did you think about this band? You did the the dying seven inch and the reality filter LP.
1: Right, right. We had uh, a pretty big falling out uh after the LP, um, which was really weird, which was was my first dealing with a band, uh that I thought like we were like i I never had a band that what's the term I want to use? Uh, that self-destructive, maybe in a way <clears throat> um we I can't even remember i I mean, I don't think about it much, but we had gotten word from someone that said they were going on revelation, and I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And and one of my faults or saving graces, I don't know, with the label has been with both being the label owner and a quote-unquote musician, because when a band says, hey, we want to go do something, I, as a musician, says, yeah, everyone's music is theirs, why not? where I've had trouble being the business guy saying, but we've got a deal. So when 1134, after they had released the LP, which I think is fantastic, um, which was a really hard LP to put out, it took a long time and it was really expensive. So once it finally came out, it was kind of like a relief. They had gotten a tour offer to go to Europe with Ignite. And so I was like, okay, this is like, they're going to be off to the races with this LP. And we'd gotten into some words or something. And and there was discussion about them going to Revelation. And at this point, they'd kind of become a a bit of a headache. And I just remember going, okay, I'm totally with that. Like, that's fine. And, oh, revelation is going to take over and they're going to press the reality filter. And I was like, sounds great. Tell Jordan to call me, let's talk, let's do this thing. Like whatever makes you guys happy and gets me out of having to deal with, with the situation that had arisen, uh, I was good. And so they told me we're on revelation and I'm like, okay, that's great. And so I had told the guys that I had working for uh, New Age and network found in Europe. Who were who are now the guys running Cortex Records over there? Uh, I said, "Hey, let's. We're not going to spend any more money on any tour support because they're on Revelation." And they were like, "Okay, no more money." So we stopped. Uh, well, they were already in Europe, so it's not like we could have spent any more money advertising a tour that was in the process. But it was like, "Hey, this, they're going on Revelation," and so uh sometime after that i talked to jordan and he was like i don't know what you're talking about and i was like they said that you're interested in putting this record up he was like dude i no i don't know this is news to me and i was just like what's going on here like what's what's not connecting and then the band called me from europe upset that I had halted any spending, which was our everything had been spent already. And I said, You guys told <laughs> me you were on Revelation. And so there were words back and forth. When they came back from tour, they owed just shy of 10 grand in merch and records. And they basically told me to go fuck myself. And so I was out 10 grand. And that was the 1134 deal. <laughs>
0: Fuck. Great intro though. Yeah. God, I love that intro. Yeah, the record's
1: great. I'm not gonna take anything away from the band.
0: Payback Hartsfield, man. Send uh twenty bucks a month. You know?
1: That would be fantastic.
0: Well, they should send you the money so you can read you the redemption eighty seven LP. But perfect deal yeah agreed um also in 1996 hulk hogan turns heel what's your uh, opinion on this
1: you know what i have never been a hulk hogan fan and i i don't know if he could do anything to make me a fan like i was always hyper i was dusty i was flair i just never i never bought the hogan deal like i just never was into it
0: you weren't seven in 1987,
1: so uh, that's why. Yeah, exactly. I mean, tell me your thoughts.
0: Well, I, it was he—he's the master of self-preservation, and uh, <laughs> right. I mean, that's what he had to do. He was—he oh, yeah. was getting yeah. booed as a baby face, so you got to do a heel turn, or you got to quit. Right. So, um, right, and it turned into another good run. But uh, that was just—yeah, that was just a joke. <laughs> we, we don't have to, we don't have to talk wrestling um so you kind of you take a musical break do you do anything between su- suppression swing and amendment 18
1: uh no uh did I uh well in 97 98 i did an east Coast tour with Ensign. oh and I did a string of shows, maybe six or seven, which I'd never seen a photo from, but I would love to see proof that I did that because it's just a faint memory. Um, But after that came uh, in 99, Amendment 18, I'm sorry, in 98, Amendment 18 started playing, and then in conjunction with that was the big Unbroken, Outspoken show in San
0: Bernardino for Eric. Okay, so were you involved in in putting that on? uh,
1: I didn't have anything to do with the booking of it. Um, Ezot from the Showcase booked it at the San Bernardino Arena. And I was originally asked to play second guitar for Unbroken, which uh, I had reservations about quite a few and the band quickly had reservations about um so they rescinded the deal and i i thought or the offer and i thought that was a much better thing because i couldn't have done it right um so uh outspoken played i don't even remember how that came about but it was outspoken and broken and um in the san bernardino arena which was a show bigger than either band had ever played before, as far as I know.
0: Yeah, I was there. That's uh, yeah, yeah. That's the only time I saw I was smoking, other than when you did the Seek with Cali. Oh, okay. So I didn't get in hardcore until, oh. like '96, um, and I was I was only 16, dude. Don't blame me. You know, <laughs> we can't, we can't we can't make our parents fuck earlier? <laughs> so. But yeah. So, so what is the impetus of doing MMA 18? Like, uh, why do you decide you want to do another like serious band and, and how do you put it together and choose the dudes?
1: Um, MMA 18 was, uh, was Isaac from the chorus myself and Steve from instead. And it was just really like a few to everyone breaking edge and, and the late '90s and what it had done to piss off hardcore, and so it was just like, "Our hey, we're not expecting anything out of this, but probably just to make a few enemies." And uh, so we, in the in late '98, I want to say, I think we had our demos at the the Unbroken, Outspoken show. So that was the end of '98. That's November '98. We had already had our demo. So in 99, I put out the LP on New Age, which uh, which at that time, we were doing what was not cool, like being overly straight edge, at least around the people we knew, like beat people over the head with this record, kind of straight edge. Uh, nobody, we, we didn't get a lot of traction.
0: Yeah, but you put out a lot of shit. Like that. Well, I mean, you do that LP. You do three seven inches, all like in that that range of one year. So yeah,
1: we were really busy amongst ourselves. You know, we were writing and recording constantly. I mean, everyone lived within a couple mile radius, so we were able to stay busy. And also, too, is Steve wrote some like a decent amount of guitar parts. So not only was I rec- writing, but Steve came up with a lot of that early stuff. I mean, there, there's riff I can't remember how to play, and that's how I know <laughs> that Steve must have written it. Um, but he would just show up with full songs, like ready to go. And uh, so we were able to write stuff, you know, faster and you know, uh, probably more. I was more productive than any band previously.
0: Yeah, and, and what's your overall memories and feelings about this band?
1: Uh, it was probably my most rewarding uh, experience as a quote-unquote songwriter. Um, early on, we we toured in 99. Like, at the end of 99, we'd already done um, a West Coast tour. And we were just kind of off to the races and just doing our thing and uh, my most uh, my most memorable thing is probably our just suck and go for it attitude I mean we got there was one point where uh, we excuse me um, uh, Isaac and I were working for a moving and storage company And we got a moving job to the Midwest. And so we figured out we were going to go out in this moving truck with our equipment and a house full of whoever's stuff. (laughs) And we were going to go, we were going to bury our equipment in the furthest part of the truck inside and cover it, move this person to the Midwest, and then go play a week's worth of shows in a moving truck and we booked the shows and we (laughs) did the moving job canceled so we were like what the fuck like and that was going to be our paid way out there we were like we've got gas and a vehicle we're going to end up in the midwest for free and we'll just got some work done so we'll probably have some cash So we ended up driving a Ford Taurus with a cargo rack on the top with all of our shit to pull off five shows, four shows. And I didn't want to cancel and we wanted to play shows outside of California. So it was just a mix of, well, we got a car and we're not, you know, we'll borrow cabinets. Like, fuck it, let's just go. So luckily we were at a time and an age and a, and a level of irresponsibility where we were able to do a bunch of shit. Anybody in their right mind probably would have said, hey, let's just uh, do that some other time. Um, but uh, the the last two records we did were easily the most rewarding uh, records. They're, I don't think they're thought of as um, if people lay out the the things i've written or recorded on i don't think those records are a lot of people's favorites just because i think well for whatever reason but i think a18 really didn't hit anyone's radar really hard
0: yeah the the two lps other than the new the new age one they come out on victory mm-hmm. they come out on victory and uh right yeah and you were able to do you went to europe right
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, we did a seven inch on a Europe label with some great, great friends. We ended up meeting, but, uh, a lot of the shows canceled some were smaller than expected. We just showed up because they said, Hey, if you do the seven inch, we'll book a tour for you. And we were just like, yeah, okay, sure. But after the first, uh, when we did our first full tour, in Europe like we did five weeks off of the first record that came out on Victory called Forever After Nothing and we did five weeks we did some of the shows with Darkest Hour Um, it was just like a really great we'd meet bands and play four or five shows together it was a great great experience where I think was the first time I felt like the band really had hit a point where we were really hitting all the right parts in the songs. It just felt like we were really doing something together. And the shows were great. We had great turnouts and stuff in Europe. And then we came home and, and re- wrote and record the, recorded the second record. And actually, the first LP on Victory was supposed to be on Revelation, which is a whole nother
0: story. Well, go ahead, bud. It's a podcast. <laughs> it's we, t- we tell stories. <laughs> <laughs> Okay,
1: well, we had recorded a three-song demo, and we were sending it around. Like, hey, I thought New Age had done all it could do for the band, and I really wanted to spend my time writing and recording for A18, and I didn't want to have to do double duty, um, trying to promote the record as well as just being a musician for once, if you will. Um, And so we sent the demo around to a bunch of places, and. Revelation was interested, and we were like, "Fucking sounds great! You're right down the street. We've known you for however many years. They've distributed New Age for however many years. Great, good deal. It's 2002, I want to say, and uh let's do it. So we signed for two records with Revelation, and uh, we record the LP. One of the songs comes out on a sampler for Rev on a CD sampler. They used to do those like CD samplers that would be given out on warp tours and different things. And I want to say it was Us and Curl Up and Die maybe on the same sampler. Um, But it was a song or two from the record promoting Coming Out on Revelations, Forever After Nothing record. And um, I had gotten in a disagreement with an employee at Revelation that's not there anymore. about something with them distributing New Age, if I'm not mistaken. And we had had a disagreement or whatever, a fight, whatever you want to call it. And it had been figured out, whatever. But shortly after that, I received uh, an email that said, uh, uh, oh yeah, okay, for the A18 record, um, we're kind of concerned that the band isn't going to isn't going to support the record as we had hoped. So, we're going to put you on Crisis Records, which is, or was at the time, uh, a, a little side label revelation had done that had put out, you know, the Far Side 7 Inch, and, and I can't even think of what else had come out on Crisis. And we were like, no, 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 no. We're, we've been up and down the West Coast. We've already been to Europe. Uh, we're going to go to Europe again. We saw there's a big R at the top of this contract. We're on Revelation Records. Revelation Records needs to put out our record. No, no, we're not going to do it. We're scared you're not going to support the record. And I, I knew that this news had come from my disagreement with said employee. And uh, Jordan was still the owner but wasn't very hands-on with a lot of things. And uh, this situation wasn't going to change. So we were in a situation where recording was already done. It was already paid for. It was already in their hands. They had already released a song on a comp sampler. And now we needed to get busy. This record needed to come out so we could keep moving. And we were at a standstill. And uh, I can't remember if it was Isaac or I, had been speaking with our friend Clint that worked at Victory. And we explained the situation and he was like, You gotta be kidding me. They're not gonna put that record out. And we had already sent him some of the songs and stuff. He had already heard it. And he was just like, let me give you a call back tomorrow. And he called back the next day and was just like, Hey, would you want to be on Victory? And we're like, Yeah, we're lost at sea right now, of course. Victory was huge at the time. And so we were like, we're about to make a step up, like because of this weird situation we're getting put in. And so uh, he's like, "Hey, Tony says they'll do it." So it was literally we were drowning, and somebody has thrown us a life preserver, and we were like stoked, cool. We got sidelined, but we're back on track, and this is this stands to be much bigger and better. <clears throat> and so there was a standoff because revelation didn't want to release the record until the recording had been paid for. And they had agreed to just release it for what we, for what the studio cost was and victory wouldn't pay the money till the masters were in hand. So it was really just like, okay, we've got to make this deal like what needs to happen. And so uh, we came up with the money paid Revelation revelation released the record the record went to <laughs> victory the victory put it out and then we went on tour and we toured the US uh, we did that the, the keeping keeping our commitment with those uh, Midwest states we toured the US once I think we did the West coast two or three times and then we did Europe uh, and then we came home from Europe really. You know, burning on all cylinders. Recorded, writ, wrote, and recorded uh, the uh, record that came after that. It was called *Dear Furious*, and we're just okay. Let's fucking do this. And then guys started quitting, and the lineup started uh, started fractioning or or fragmenting. And then uh, we just kind of came to a screeching halt.
0: How how do you feel about that? Like. It, was it, like, a major disappointment for you? And of all your bands ending, like, what do you think was the most heartbreaking one?
1: Oh, uh, Memon 18, A18, yeah. We had really, I mean, though Outspoken was doing its best material at the end, amendment um, 18, or A18, the 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 Dear Furious record that came out on Victory was like, we had already established ourselves touring the U.S. Touring the West Coast, touring Europe, were on our third LP and third or fourth seven-inch. Like we were, we were really in a spot to where uh, that record should have done great things for us. And uh, the drummer who played on the Deer Furious A eighteen record, uh, he and I had spent most of the summer grinding in a storage unit just with his laptop, I'm sorry, with his desktop computer, just demoing, demoing, recording, recording, demoing this where we were just at a point where we were just like clockwork. We would just churn out songs, we would change parts, we would re record the song. And it was the first time I'd ever been in a situation where you just sat and wrote and recorded and wrote and recorded and to where that record sounds most consistent, I think, of things I've had a part in, um, and is really just everyone doing their best. And it's the thing I'm most satisfied with.
0: That's rad. Um, after MMA 18, though, you you take like almost a decade off of playing music. Is that correct? Or did you do stuff in between MMA 18 and Dundine?
1: Yes, I was in One Choice.
0: Oh, you you played in One Choice for a while.
1: I played in One Choice for a while, uh bass and then play guitar? Uh no, I just played bass. I played guitar at one show. I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, that was just at a point of being very uh at my wit's end, kind of wondering to start over again what to kind of put your heart into um, and one choice was like hey everyone wants to do this let's do it um, so uh, I didn't write a single song in one choice um, but it was a bunch of great guys hanging out and being super straighted so uh, I don't need too many things more than that um, but that was yeah the, the lead into done dying coming at uh 2014,
0: maybe? I have it as, uh, <laughs> we did a 7-inch called Shelf Life in 2013.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, 2013, I think we wrote and recorded uh, two 7-inches in that first year. And uh, that was a band that was born out of uh, convenience in a lot of ways. because. Chris, who played bass, and I shared a warehouse, so we would practice at the warehouse. So it was like, oh, we've worked all day, and just we can practice at night. Okay, why not start a band? And so it was kind of like uh, it, it just, like I said, came out of convenience, um, but was was not really the most rewarding band personally, as far as the material we were doing. Um, I wrote some of it, Chris wrote some of it. I guess we each wrote probably equal amounts, but like some of it was just not like it was was fun, but I mean, it didn't really. uh, I'd come out of things where I felt like, you know, sliced my guts open and and poured them into records. And then I was now getting into a point of like kind of going through the motions, having fun, it being a hassle. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it had its benefits and it was, it was fun to record some of the times and stuff, but, uh, I don't think any of the material I look back at and say, wow, we were really hitting our, our marks or, or really, you know, we really had any, any, you know, real, uh, real, real key, key parts there.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> what was your idea for doing the, uh, the new age 30th anniversary show? And uh, what went into that?
1: Um, Chris Lisk, who is a local guy that does a lot of really cool shit with shows. Uh, I was kind of like, well, you know, 2018, 30 years. And and he was kind of like, hey, man, when are we put this thing together. And I was like, oh, sweet. You're going to do all the heavy lifting. Perfect. And so he knew the ins and outs of booking shows. and. Uh, all the nuances that come with the venue and all the stuff. And I've never liked booking shows or been good at it at all. Um, I, I just don't really, uh, have a knack for it somehow. You know, I've, I've played enough of them, but setting them up, if it, if it's something big, uh, if it comes to a wrestling show, that, that I can put my, my knowledge behind. But for some reason, uh, hardcore shows that have something bigger going on, uh, had just never been my strong point So he did all the heavy lifting Contacted all the bands uh, We collectively picked the weekend I think that worked for the most bands uh, So um, yeah, it was just uh, A time And a focal point for everyone Just to get together and have fun New bands, old bands, local bands Far away bands Uh, You know, and and some bands that couldn't play, members came. And so it was really just like a a great reunion, (laughs) much better than a high school reunion or something where you've got to see old people you don't really have a lot in common with. I mean, these were guys that we'd really done a lot of stuff with together uh, collectively. And so it was just fantastic, you know. And the turnout was everyone who needed to be there, was there and and uh you know it, it was it was a ton of fun and it really really everyone, everyone that i ran into
0: had a great experience that rules let's talk about some of the stuff you got going on now because you're still putting mm-hmm. out records and uh sure. a few, record. yeah a few of the newest are i don't know they seem to be getting some traction or some eyes on them so what, what yeah what do you got going on now
1: uh, the newest stuff that came out was the Treason EP, and then uh, Red Bait came out right after that. And I'm sorry, Red Bait came out right before that. God, look at me, I'm losing my mind. So uh, the Crow Killer record is in my hands. It's shipping to stores this week, um, and then immediately after it, uh, the Life Force record's coming out, and uh, we just got test pressings today. On a new band that uh, two of the guys from Life Force called Vanguard, which is uh, a very straight edge, very vegan band. Um, that is going to be a one sided 12 inch EP. <clears throat> and then uh, also the Dividing Line, one of my favorite bands, is, uh, recorded an LP. We got test pressing for that, just waiting for some layout elements. And uh, yeah, it's funny. There's a lot of stuff happening right this minute but after those releases i just mentioned there's there's a bit of a hole in in the atmosphere coming up so i'm sure things seem to fall out of the sky in in my lap so uh, i'm sure uh 2021 will have uh well 2021 will definitely have the dividing line lp um and i believe red bait is gearing up for an lp so I think it'll be more of the same bands and maybe a new band or two.
0: So rad! You never stopped. Like, was there ever a year or two that you didn't put out something? It seems like you've you've been putting yeah all the time.
1: Yeah, the late nineties were uh, a difficult time financially. Um, we had an office in Europe that uh, was got got hosed by some distributors over there. Uh, So we didn't really have enough leverage to collect on some debt. So there were some Europe distributors that were not paying uh, bills. And then when that 1134 thing happened, that was 96-ish. We lost our warehouse right after that because we were just broke. And in addition to that, around the same time, we had a distributor on the East Coast uh, left us. Uh, I want to say about 30 grand in the hole so the mid to late actually the late mid late 90s were pretty painful um, so right after the Redemption 87 LP we halted production we had actually had the next Redemption 87 record the one that ended up on Blackout we had and we had to turn away as well as the trial LP that went to equal vision was also slated for new age. So there was a, there was a time right then when uh, we just were dead in the water. We were just, uh, we, we were stopped very short uh, due to finances.
0: Yeah. It's a bummer. Cause that redemption never came out on vinyl. And then uh, that trial is a great record.
1: I yeah. Yeah. Don't. It was, it was a horrible. It was a horrible time for us. Uh, not only uh, did I lose my warehouse, but I began running the label out of a bedroom in a house, and I literally had warehouse shelving pushed into a bedroom. Uh, I've got some photos of it. It's so depressing. <laughs> but we'll, uh, we'll use it as yeah. a show art. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was like, oh, what is that? A is that a junkyard? Oh no, that was New Age in '98.
0: <laughs> oh fuck. Well, what can you do? The, uh, the yeah, the Trial Foundation Seven Inch is my favorite, and you put that one out.
1: Oh, awesome! Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you like
0: it. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, dude. So I'm gonna get peppered by everyone of all the stuff I missed. So I, <laughs> I assume we'll have to do this again. Um, it was just Absolutely. the the. Uh, the catalogue is daunting, dude. And I didn't know how to like really yeah. weave my way through it. And I hope that people enjoyed it somewhat. Um, I
1: hope so. Yeah. yeah.
0: We'll find out. But uh do you feel yeah. like I hit enough? Do you feel like you've been well represented?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of nuances and nooks and crannies. I could have probably gone on tangents on that were probably not the most thrilling to a listener, but I think you hit on some good ones and hopefully uh hopefully I kept it interesting.
0: Yeah. Well I had a great time. You're one of my favorite people to talk to about this stuff and
1: Thank and you. I miss seeing you.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, COVID sucks and I don't like to leave yeah. San Diego. It's the best city in America. <laughs> so. But uh yeah. Hey, thanks so much for doing this, Mike. I really appreciate it. Hey,
1: thank you, my buddy. I,
0: I, I appreciate it. Okay. We'll talk soon. All right, take care, buddy. All right, bye bye.